Hello and welcome to the menu. This is Monaco's program on top food, drink and hospitality. This week we meet the founders of the Benelux Wine Company, a superb wine shop in Amsterdam focusing on wines from the region. Netherlands especially, this is a new wine territory and there's a lot of experimentation, a lot of new flavors, also traditional grapes being grown and I think it's just fits in with the whole uh, natural wine and new kind of approach to wine that we're seeing today. Then back to basics, we hear from an author who wrote a cookbook that is meant to last. For the photo shoot for the book we did eight days of shooting and I basically transferred my entire flat to a studio in Hackney because I collect along with vintage cookbooks tableware, linen, all these things from you know my career of doing travel journalism. All that and much more ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Menu. Shop shelves often seem dominated by wines from the likes of Italy, France and Spain and it often takes a bit of an effort to find quality wines from smaller countries. One of our favourite wine shops in Amsterdam, Benelux Wine Company, makes this much easier. As its name suggests, it focuses on wines from the region, from Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. So, some of the best wines from the region with an added bonus of a good cheese selection. Can it get any better? I met the founders AJ Pawlikowski and Mallory Lane at Midori House Studio One. They started by explaining how the idea for the business was born. Well, it's a bit of a funny story, I guess a little bit stemming from myself. Uh, my background and specialty is actually in cheese. Uh, and even more niche and weird, I am a Japanese cheese specialist. And so when we were moving from Japan to Amsterdam, we certainly had an interest in wine, in particular AJ. I mean, he was curious about wines of the region. When I was going to, you know, a cheese conference and competition, he decided to drive around the region and... Essentially rented a car for a month, visited about 30 producers in 30 days, and that was from Amsterdam down to Luxembourg. And that's all within our current radius of 400 kilometers that we work with today. So Mallory was still mainly focused on cheese back then, so almost three years ago. And she's since joined up the shop, and we do import. We are still connected to Japan, but we're really more focused on our local community now. Did you always have that interest on on, on wines from the Benelux region? How, how was that, that approach? Where did it come from? I would say it's a fascination with things that you don't think are necessarily natural or traditional. Yet when AJ traveled around the region, he found a lot of wines that were really lovely. But if you don't know where to buy them or you don't know that they exist, uh, you don't know who to trust necessarily uh, with an online shop or this person or that person of whether or not it's actually a decent bottle that you're getting. Uh, I think there was an interest from us, especially with an outside perspective. We weren't doing it from any sense of loyalty. We're not Dutch. We're not Belgian. We're not Luxembourgish. So we've found wines that we like that we could recommend wholeheartedly. And, you know, if you can do that for a whole new region, it's also kind of exciting. Absolutely, and, and we'll be tasting a couple of wines shortly. But before that, AJ, can you tell us, as Mallory just said, the wines from the region are lovely. What makes them so special? I was really inspired by what Mallory had done with working with cheese in Japan. And this is 
kind of taking a product that is somewhat unknown to outsiders. So after we moved to Amsterdam, kind of finding these new producers, again, in Belgium and Netherlands especially, this is a new wine territory. And there's a lot of experimentation, a lot of new flavors, also traditional grapes being grown. And I think it's just fits in with the whole uh, natural wine and new kind of approach to wine that we're seeing today. Do you want to introduce these two bottles to me and our listeners? What what have you brought with you? Yeah, so we've got uh, two bottles here today, one from the Netherlands, one from Luxembourg. So the one from the Netherlands is only about an hour south of Amsterdam. From Luxembourg, it's about a four-hour drive south. So while AJ's opening, I can introduce. So we have an orange natural wine from Weinhard Dasmus. And this is a really special producer for us because we help them with the harvest every year. Oh, really? Uh, so Ron and Monique have been um, making wine for 11, 12 years or so now. But they really only got into natural winemaking maybe in 2017. And since then, their orange bottle that we'll be opening, Sucine Bon Orange, it's culty in Amsterdam. I mean, all you have to do is look it up. It's got a beautiful label with this orange octopus, you know, rising out of the water and attacking a wine bottle. And uh, unfiltered and clarified wild fermentation from a biodynamic and organic vineyard. We're opening the 2020 vintage. This is a bottle that we've kept back ourselves that's completely sold out. So I really appreciate you brought it with you and we get to taste it now. Yeah. Beautiful. AJ, you are the professional here. Do you want to describe what we taste? Yeah, as Mallory mentioned, this is a producer. Um, it's Ron and Monique. Dasmus is the first natural wine producer in the Netherlands. We have had the pleasure of doing a lot of vertical tastings with this. So again, this is a 2020. And with a vertical tasting, you're tasting the same producer, same bottle over different vintages. It's using... one of the best things I've tasted in 2023, I can tell you, by the way. Okay, that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. How would you describe the quality of wines from the region? You already said that you can make amazing finds, but yeah. in general, if if you look at wines from the region, yeah. what do you have to watch out for? I mean, I think some of the special characteristics, the way you would describe it would be that it's a cool climate region. So overall, you're getting a little bit higher acidity, a lot of freshness. You know, having drier styles, especially in cooler years. So 2021, like, was an incredibly cool summer. So you had a lot drier vintages. But 2020, the one you're having now, was a nice warm summer. So you even have, like, the barest hint of residual sugar, even in a natural wine, which gives it a little bit more roundness, though still being quite dry. It's got a softness I always like about the Dosimus orange. Sometimes, like, some peachiness, orange peel you always get that touch of funk that's really fun. Tell me about your customers. What kind of a connection with the local community do you have over there in Amsterdam? Well, while we're drinking this bottle, I think it's nice to talk about the fact that a lot of our customers actually help to pick these grapes. Because we're close, only about an hour away from this vineyard, we have the ability to take a lot of our customers down and uh, pick grapes. In Amsterdam, we have a great community, especially because we do a lot of tastings over the past couple years. You know, when there were not COVID restrictions, we've had so many different themed tastings, vertical tastings, focusing on different producers or different styles and grapes, Christmas parties, uh, King's Day, which is a absolutely nuts time if you're ever in Amsterdam. 
but there's lots of orange wine. But our community is made up of local Dutch who live in the neighborhood as well as expats. Amsterdam's a very cosmopolitan city, so we really, really have a multicultural neighborhood. You know, I'd say half of our regulars are not born in the mm. Netherlands. So I would imagine there is no no jealousy about foreigners coming there and then selling the regional wines. There's definitely confusion. We get asked <laughs> that quite regularly. <laughs> You but know, why? Yeah. I mean, I think we really take great pride in this and we support that. And I think Monocle readers and I think really a lot of our customers understand that, that this is kind of the way the world is working now. You have people living in countries outside of where they were born. And Shall we look at the second bottle of wine? Yeah. So what was this again? So this is Pinot Noir from Luxembourg. It's a young Pinot Noir. So this is 2021 from our cool year. The producer is Maison Viticole schmidt and they're 11th generation brothers who are in their like 20s, early 30s. So young guys taking over as the 11th generation. Can't imagine the weight on their shoulders, but they, they hold it quite well. One reason we really love this Pinot Noir is their fermentation style carbonic maceration where you put all of the whole bunch grapes into a vat you remove the oxygen and when you do that the berries will start to ferment from the inside out and it creates this super juicy luscious but still can be dry pinot noir it's a fermentation style most commonly used in Beaujolais so you'll think of it as gamay style but doing it with pinot noir is really lovely let me taste That is so, so pleasant to drink again. It sounds like you have really close relationship with all these wine producers. How well do you know them now? One of the great things with working in the region is we get to visit them. And I think for the first year and a half, we literally picked up every single bottle ourselves. We're going down there and you have lunch and you hang and you share a bottle of wine and chat about the state of the world. So Nicholas, uh, who's the winemaker here, of this uh, Pinot Noir, we go down and visit spend time with the family. They're just really normal families, but they've been making wine in Luxembourg, let's say, for 10 generations. But um, they always have time for us. And yeah. Luxembourg in particular is different from Belgium and the Netherlands. Really old winemaking families, but historically they haven't been exported. So we've been doing. And then in the Netherlands and, and Belgium, I think they're often overlooked, especially by bigger wine shops or wine importers. So we feel very well received, I would say, by them, especially with all of the younger producers, because they're usually doing something different and stepping out into the open by themselves. And it's nice to be a cheerleader. I bet. Now, there's one obvious question, which is that why is it so hard to find these wines in, in other parts of the world? Well, half of the answer deals with Luxembourg and half of that is with Belgium and the Netherlands. Luxembourg has historically not exported uh, because we're only about four hours away, we can started out driving down there and coming back with truckloads of wine. And we're working directly with these small families. We're not dealing with export teams or marketing teams. They're really all small producers, around 100,000 bottles. For Belgium and in the Netherlands, that has to do with climate change. If you take into account the fact that Limburg and uh, Maastricht today, the main city in Limburg, has the same average temperature as Dijon, which is in Burgundy, from 1970, so 50 years just a couple of degrees change, a little bit warmer. So it's really allowed for people to make Riesling, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay in the Netherlands and Belgium. Well, and beyond that, I think with the Belgium and the Netherlands, it's also an element of quantity. People are drinking 
their regional wines, their local wines more and more. And the best ones are harder and harder to even get in the Netherlands. So when we find a good wine, we're working as hard as we can to maintain that relationship and before, get it. Before the can. locals drink yes. all the wines away. Probably yeah. before so the we, Londoners get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To answer the question of why us as people born in the United States who moved to the Netherlands from Japan, what we have to do what right we have in this world, I guess we can see from an outsider's perspective, and I think that's really valuable. Now, you've been running this business for about two years. I'm wondering, what have been some of your favorite moments so far? After the series of lockdowns, and during the lockdowns, we actually, COVID, we were able to stay open. The Dutch government allowed wine shops to stay open as essential businesses, but it was really after the final lockdown that we were able to have more gatherings in the shop uh, to really strengthen the community. And I think for us, something that we're really happy to see is um, our customers you know, spending time together outside of the shop, drinking our wine, preferably, but um, expats, Dutch, there's just a mixture of people that, that wine is really bringing together. What kind of plans do you have for the future? Would you like to open any other shops, maybe in Brussels or maybe in Luxembourg? I don't know. It's a good question as to how it would be received. I would say, in in the same sense that natural wine is just insanely popular in Amsterdam, you have this openness to new ideas, especially when it comes to food and wine, that I think could be a little different. Maybe a second shop in Amsterdam to start. But one thing we love about what we do is it's the two of us. And we love being a mom and pop shop uh, and working together. And one thing we have that's really happened in the past six months as we started to work with more restaurants in Amsterdam. You can find our bottles, including uh, both of these bottles at some restaurants around town. So for people visiting, after they visit our shop, we always recommend a few places to, to check out. But I don't know if there's, you know, necessarily plans for world domination. Never say never. <laughs> A.J. Pawlikowski and Mallory Lane, they run the Benelux Wine Company in Amsterdam. Let's next hear the week's hospitality headlines. Here is Monaco's Lillian Fawcett. Japan are the world champions of pastry after topping France and Italy at the Coupe du Monde de la Patisserie in Lyon, also known as the World Pastry Cup. The team created a huge variety of tasting desserts and artistic confections over two days, inspired by the theme of climate change. Japan's win is its first in 16 years and comes after five years as runners-up. Ireland has enraged Italian lawmakers by announcing plans to add health warnings to wine, spirits and beer labels. Italy brings in billions of euros a year from wine exports and the country's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Antonio Tajani, accused Ireland of an attack on the Mediterranean diet. But Ireland is free to go ahead with the bill after a deadline passed for the European Commission to oppose it. Berlin has welcomed a new food market, the first German site for the Manifesto Market hospitality brand. Manifesto Market Potsdamer Platz will house 22 restaurants, four bars and an entertainment and cultural events programme. The Manifesto brand got started in Prague in 2018 and its new venture in the German capital will be its fourth location. And one of Italy's most respected hospitality guides has named a Swiss restaurant as the best pizzeria outside of Italy. Gambero Rossi handed the annual award to Napoli, a six-restaurant chain. The judges were impressed by the use of local ingredients by its Naples-born founder. And those are the week's food and drink headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Lillian. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24.
Trends come and go and cookbooks are in no way separate from these whims. But what does it take to create a cookbook that lasts and remains relevant for years to come? Brie Graham has been thinking about this question and she has done a great job with her debut book. It's called Table for Two, Recipes for the Ones You Love. She joined me in the studio to tell more about the release and what it took to write it. So Table for Two was sort of developed, I mean, out of a newsletter that I started during lockdown. So I have a newsletter called Dishes to Delight that goes out every Sunday night and started in January 2021 when London was about to go into the second phase of lockdown in the city. And I was really, really miserable and had spent obviously the sort of year before locked in my very, very tiny, tiny flat in London, just me and my boyfriend and him being the only person I was cooking for and sort of longing for the people I'd missed, I'm from Australia originally, and borders closed, and I had no idea when I was going to get home next. I just, you know, was really sad and, and missing all these people. And the thing that I really wanted was those kind of occasions, you know, when you, you see your mum on a Tuesday night for dinner and it's not fussy and you're just having something that she's made that you've grown up with and kind of these intimate meals that lead to, you know, big conversations and that feeling of intimacy around the table, I suppose. The newsletter touched on a lot of those points and kind of grew from there and gained a lot of readers, which was really exciting. And the book was born out of that. Amazing. It's actually one of my favourite books I've seen in 2023. I think what's also interesting is that it's kind of almost like I hope you you like what I say. It's kind of like back to the basics book. It's not too complicated. It's the recipes are relatively easy, and there's something there's some kind of a retro aspect in it. It's hard to describe. It's about the design of the book, and it's about the stories you write about in the book, and 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 the recipes. And and actually, I just realised that you've actually named that some of the inspiration is from some of the 1980s cookbooks. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean. I am an avid collector of vintage cookbooks. I mean, I my bookshelves take up majority of my flat and are probably starting to buckle if I look too closely at them. Vintage food magazines from the 70s, 80s, 90s even. I mean, I think that was something that I definitely grew up reading and I love that era of cookbooks, everything down to the design. There's a real trend in 1980s cookbooks um, with a lot of red typography and so I really wanted that captured in the cover and the design aspects were something that I just loved working on for this book so yeah tell me more about the design and what you wanted to create (laughs) I think in terms of what you said too about the sort of the accessibility of of the recipes as well that was something that has always really mattered to me because I have a lot of people that you know read the newsletter or even just you know friends and family that maybe are scared of cooking or always look at me and say oh I could never do that that's so fancy or ridiculous or whatever and they feel like there's that barrier between them and creating that when really that's mostly fear and so to kind of really try and talk people through that so I wanted all these recipes to be as accessible as possible and so the two chapters of the book are split between kind of your Monday to Thursday quick easy get it done in half an hour but still look absolutely stunning and that's called easy to impress and then the second chapter of the book is just to delight and that's like blowout meals you've got all day it's a special anniversary or occasion or or whatever in terms of then the design for that as well we really wanted to bring in a lot of these elements so for the photo shoot for the book we did eight days of shooting and I basically transferred my entire flat to a studio in Hackney because I collect along with vintage cookbooks tableware linen all these things from you know my career of doing sort of travel journalism and things like that I travel a lot so, yeah, we, we brought as much sort of personal aspects into it as possible. So we can see your vintage tableware in these photos in this book. Yeah, pretty much pretty much all of it is, is, is stuff that I 
I got a very nervous cab ride uh, across the city with like crates of like fine glassware and like platters and all sorts of things that I've collected over the years. And I had to plead with the taxi driver to be very gentle on the brakes <laughs> as we were going, driving all the way from um, North London to Hackney. How easy was it for you to decide which recipes to include in this book? Yeah, that was that was difficult. I mean, you're sort of limited by page numbers, I suppose, and, and sort of the, the, the size of the book. So yeah, there was a process of elimination. I think I had probably 120 and cut it down to 80, um, which is what it is now. But I think a lot of them were sort of the, I would want this book to be like a reference cookbook for somebody. They've got, you know, it's their best friend's birthday and they completely forgot, but they're going to invite them over for dinner tomorrow night and they want something really quick and easy that's going to make that person feel really special. And so I wanted it to just be something that they could reach for and know that they could find both ends of the spectrum in terms of recipes. So, yeah. It's a timeless cookbook, I have to point out. It's not something that is going to be forgotten after 2023 has passed. Timeless was like a really key word in terms of even the design um, and the recipes too, I think, really... I think there's obviously there's a lot of trend-led cooking that we're dictated to now by social media or things like that. And I really tried not to engage with a lot of other stuff. What I does suppose. it mean when you, when, when you purposefully try to avoid trends? Well, how did you have it's to take hard. that into account? I think it's kind of like just being really true to yourself as well. I mean, okay, if you're wanting to include a recipe because it's something that's like on every London menu at the moment and people you know, are talking lots about it or something like that, being like, okay, but is that what you want to eat? Is that what you want to cook? It can be great for someone else, but if it's not true to you, I think, you know, some of the best advice I had at the beginning of this process was at the end of the day, like your name's on the cover and you're the person that's going to have to look at it the most, hold it the most, talk about it the most. So you need to be so confident and that it's it's you, I guess, on those pages. What are some of your favourite recipes in the book? I love, I mean, I love all of them, but I really love um, the menus. So throughout the book as well, there's the 80 recipes, essays, but there's six menus that kind of chart different moments in the year, times in the year, that sort of thing. So one of my favourites is perfect for the weather we have right now in London. And it's called A Holiday When the Sky is Grey. And it's kind of like, you know, we've just had two weeks of rain and you just really want to escape and want that feeling of summer and sunshine. And so it looks at produce that's really seasonal to this time of year so there's a lot of like fennel and blood orange and really really beautiful seafood um, and that's one of my favorite favorite recipe collections so it's a starter a main and dessert tell me more about those recipes what else would you like to mention from the book oh gosh there were some recipes when I was writing it that I just 100% didn't even have to think and I just knew that they would be they needed to be in the book, you know, things that I had written about in the newsletter, recipes, you know, that you kind of become your signature, I suppose. So I have a, a smoked chili and vodka rigatoni pasta recipe in this. And I knew the second I got the book deal that I wanted that to be in it because it's like my newsletter reader's favorite crazy fanatic. And I took it off my website. And within the first week, I had like 15 people email me being like, Brie, Where's the recipe? <laughs> you need to send. You need to send us the recipe. <laughs> so I, I, I sent it to a few people. That's but... one. That's one recipe that does that. That is important for you. But I wonder if I asked you mm. to choose the most meaningful recipe for yourself. Yeah. That's been with you for a long time. I wonder what that would be. Gosh, I think something like it. it it's a really simple salad that's uh, in the first chapter of the book, and it's a chickpea and pomegranate salad. It takes less than five minutes to make it's a can of chickpeas it's pomegranate seeds fresh herbs red onion 
tahini dressing. It's really lovely. Um, but it's a salad that I grew up eating in my lunchbox because my mom, who's just like the most incredible cook, used to just send us to school with these things that no other kids had. And it's something that, yeah, I, I'm. that is not my recipe. That's her recipe. And so that's really sentimental and, and close to my heart. What this book also also has is, is is some some lovely essays essays by yourself about various things food related, and I think it's also something about you know that that makes it clear how important communities are and how many aspects there is to food and and all these things. You talk about the place where you live, and you talk about the place you have on the ground floor in the same building. Yes, yeah, so I live in a um, very kooky quirky building called um, Oslo Court in St John's Wood in London it's on Regent's Park and it is I'm fairly sure the only residential building in London that has a restaurant in it still back in the day that was something that was much more common it's something that's sort of more common in in the states as well but yeah we have a restaurant in the lobby of our building literally as you walk in that hasn't changed its menu decor and some of the staff since the mid-1980s and it is needs to be uh, seen to be experienced, I think. And from your window or from your balcony, you can see yeah, the customers coming in. I and... can, yeah. It's it's. Um, so I, I moved into the building during lockdown when the restaurant was closed. And so it was this really sort of eerie thing, I think, you know, that feeling when just you're just seeing something not 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 come to life yet. And so, yeah, from, from, from my apartment, we can we look down and we see this really special sort of alcove kind of thing. It's, it's an old 1920s building, so the designs are all really beautiful. Um, and so when it finally came back to life after the lockdown and it opened, it was just the most amazing thing to see the community that's created around that restaurant as well. It's a restaurant because it's been open for such a long time. It has loyal, <laughs> loyal customers. I mean, there is a regular couple that sit at this very special table for two which is sort of where the title of the book came from as well and they go there every Friday night at 6 30 for dinner and there are a couple in their 80s I was there last month and she was celebrating her 80th birthday and um yeah it's it's one of those really special restaurants and I think somewhere that people come to celebrate and to mark moments and that was such a big part of the book when I was writing it as well there is something special about food and preparing food that elevates moments when you meet your loved ones. For example, the name of your book, the whole name is Table for Two Recipes for the Ones You Love. And as I said already, this book is not only about recipes. There are some there are some other tips as well and, and, and stories. I'm wondering, just finally, if we imagine this situation that our listeners are, are sitting together for dinner with their loved ones and have been preparing a meal, what else can you do to make that moment as special as possible? Totally. So a, a big part of even the table for two at Oslo Court, the, the restaurant in my building, is this sort of their signature aesthetic, let's say. Every single table has a single rose in a vase that's the exact pink shade of hue that the tablecloth and the wallpaper and all that kind of stuff is. There's a candle, there's beautiful tablecloth, beautiful napkin, cutlery. And I think so much of that is about setting that scene and setting that moment. So... I think, you know, I, I, I give tips in one of the essays in the book. It's called a, the essay called A Single Rose. And, um, you know, I think candlelight instantly calms. Candlelight makes everyone feel better, look better. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things that is a really quick fix to kind of really start to set the scene and set that mood. Putting a really good playlist on, you know, putting a tablecloth on the table, maybe ironing the tablecloth if it's really creased, just little things that I think also just show that person that you're cooking for or that you're trying to create this moment for that you've really made that effort is just such a nice thing.
Brie Graham there, and the name of her cookbook is Table for Two, Recipes for the Ones You Love. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you are listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineer was Tamsin Howard. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is everything but the girl with nothing left to lose. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>